Probably the number one question I've been asked over the years has been, how do you live your faith in the marketplace? And my response is really simple. How can you not? Because your faith is who you are. It just simply defines who you are. And so if it's who you are and you're being authentic, which is one of the key characteristics of a leader is to be authentic. So how can you not be who you are in the marketplace? Yep. And so I, I don't think there's any specific effort that has to be made uh, other than to be authentic. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have a really special guest with me today, Barry Davis, who's the chairman and CEO of InLink Midstream, a publicly traded company out of Dallas, Texas. We talk a lot about the early days of not only the oil and gas industry, but the Midstream business, uh, how he founded the business in 96 and took it public and grew it from 12 employees to thousands of employees. We talk about the state of the oil and gas industry today and its relevance and compare it to past cycles so we can dive deeper into where we might be headed. But we really spent a lot of time today talking about leadership and the things that he's learned over a long career, not just related to business, but to his faith, his family, his friends, and how to live a more balanced life where you can get the most out of it. We talk about The Better Man, which is a organization that he has started to help uh, men across the country and a lot more. So thank you for joining me. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. Can we just start um, with your background and kind of your story growing up and what brought you to today? You bet. Well, first of all, again, uh, fun to be with you and just uh, get to spend this time and share a little bit of the story. Um, so growing up, I grew up in a small town, uh, what was then a small town, Frisco, Texas, which is now not a small town. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but at that time, it was about 1,500 people. In fact, uh, the entire time during my childhood, I think the sign uh, coming into town said 1,492 people. So uh, very modest beginning, typical family of a small town like that. But I think it was a, an incredible gift for me to be able to grow up in that town and to learn some of the things that have really stayed with me throughout my life. A couple of the values that I learned, I think, growing up in a town like that was, uh, first of all, just the value of hard work. Uh, I saw people work hard. I saw people work side by side. I had a job. Uh, in fact, if you if you go back and you look, I can really justify this, but I had a job basically every day of my life. Yep. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, and so uh, I always followed him to work. And uh, that started when I was about five years old. And then I really had an outside the family job by the time I was 10. <laughs> uh, and so I really learned the value of hard work. The second thing that I learned in growing up in the small town was really the value of relationships. So those two things have really stuck with me. If we were to just really unpack the story of my business career, the two things you're going to hear me talk a lot about is just the the, the work ethic and the relationships that everything is uh, really comes out of relationships. Just to give you a, a, an example of the relationships from my small town, 
when I was in the fourth grade, I walked into my class and my teacher was a lady named Polly Tadlock. Polly Tadlock became uh, my teacher for a year and then she became my family for life and a best friend for life. Wow. Um, the significance of that is that just this week, we're going to celebrate the life that Polly lived for 93 years, uh, 93 years long. And, uh, I'm going to get to speak at the celebration of her life. She passed away a couple of months ago, but I'll speak on Saturday of that friendship. And she was one of the greatest cheerleaders, one of the greatest encouragers, one of the greatest models of how to be a great person and how to be a great follower of Christ uh, throughout my last 50 years of my life. So uh, again, great things came out of the start that I had in a small town. Frisco, for anybody listening, is now a couple hundred thousand people. I'm sure that you had no idea back then what it would become today, but it is an incredible place. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, Chris, knowing that you're, uh, you've done some things in real estate, I know uh, you understand the value of location. Yep. Uh, Frisco, when I was growing up, was about 20 miles north of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And uh, that location allowed it to really uh, flourish in, in the last 30 or 40 years. So hard work and, and relationships, great relationships kind of set the foundation for you early on. Let's expand into how that led into kind of your teenage years and growing up, getting into the business world. You bet. Well, look, I think the thing that I also would really highlight would be the value of mentors in my life. And so if you ask specifically, how did I get into the oil and gas business? I had a mentor who was about five years older than me growing up, a man named Van Nichols. And uh, Van was a you know star person uh, in life growing up in Frisco. He went on to, to uh, Texas A&M. When he graduated from Texas A&M, he came back and he basically said, hey, I'm in this business that uh, is the greatest place to be in the oil and gas business, and I want to do everything I can to help you, uh, including if you wanted to go into that business. And so uh, Van was uh, very instrumental in me becoming a landman early days uh, in the oil and gas business. So that's really how I got in. I didn't yeah. uh, I didn't know much more about the oil and gas business than uh, my, my dear friend and, and mentor Van Nichols was in it. So it was something I wanted to do. Okay. So that's what got you interested in oil and gas. You bet. Yeah. So you started as a landman, but you're, I think you're most widely known, obviously, for what you've done in midstream. How did you walk me through kind of the progression of landman to Crosstex, which I think was that your first company? Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, uh, so... Uh, at the time, the land business was the place to be um, in the... Uh, what year is in, this? In the, I entered the business in 1984. Okay. And so everything starts, as you know, in the um, oil and gas development business. It starts by putting land together. Right. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I was uh, spent the first five years of my, my career doing that. And then something happened that was very um, significant in our industry, but the deregulation of the way natural gas was marketed changed in 1984 with an order a FERC order that allowed producers to go directly to consumers. Uh, historically, what had happened is a producer would drill a well, they would enter into a long-term contract, a 20, 30-year contract to sell to the pipeline company, who would then sell to the utility, who would then sell to the consumer. Okay. Uh, in 1984, deregulation happened and it allowed the producer to start selling directly to an industrial customer, for example. It basically created the midstream business uh, we didn't use the phrase midstream business uh, for some 20 years after that, probably okay. the early 2000s that we really, you know, started to call it by a name. But it was this flourishing entrepreneurial business where you were really the guy connecting the producer to the consumer. Okay. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to be at a point in my career where 
uh, we were populating an entire industry. Yep. And so I had an opportunity at, you know, my late twenties to move from the land business into the midstream business. And did you go work for somebody or did you start something immediately? So I moved um, again with the producer that I was with. I moved into the marketing department, okay. learned the business there, and then I moved uh, to a specific pipeline company or midstream company. Uh, at that time, it was a company called Indevco, okay. uh, a name that uh, many of the listeners may know, Kelsey Warren. I worked for Kelsey early in my career, learned the business from Kelsey and a guy named Jim Bryant, who was uh, the founder of Indevco. And so after about uh, four or five years of working with them, I was uh, inspired to go do my own thing. Uh, little did I know what uh, that would entail, but I was 30 years old and I decided that I wanted to go create a midstream company. It actually was the predecessor of all the companies that have evolved since then. Yep. And uh, the original company was called Ventana Natural Gas. Okay. Uh, we've been through now about six generations of the company and six different names. Okay. Uh, but it is ultimately the company that became Crosstex Energy and then Enlink Midstream, which we are today. So you worked for five years, learned the business, finally decided to take the leap. Was there like a certain something that happened, maybe an opportunity, like what drove you to kind of say, I'm going to go do this? Yeah, I think it was kind of in my DNA, yeah. um, Chris. I think it was, I was a guy who, uh, you know, even in the first few years of my career, I was driving up and down the roads, uh, you know, buying oil and gas leases. And all the time I was looking out the windshield, I was thinking about what I'm going to do someday. Yep. And, uh, and I always felt like it was going to have something to do with starting something that I could be a part of where we would gather up a great group of people and go do something great together. Yep. And so it could have been, quite frankly, uh, many different things, yep. uh, but it just so happened to be that it was in the midstream business. And I think I've been very uh, fortunate to have found that industry. You've kind of already touched on it, but as, as we sit here today in 2020, how would you describe the midstream business to somebody that might not know? Yeah. So... Think of it as the people that drill the wells. We call them upstream. Okay. Uh, the, that's a, an oil and gas producer. They drill wells. They produce wells to the wellhead. And then on the other end of the exchange, there the, there's a guy at the burner tip, the consumer, the guy that uses it in his industrial process or to generate electricity. In the middle mm -hmm. is the midstream. Okay. And that is the guy that basically connects the producer to the consumer that involves a very large capital infrastructure with lots of steel, lots of large facilities. And so the midstream are the guys who are providing the infrastructure. We are the highway, if you will, on which you move to get your natural gas or your crude oil to, to market. And so upstream companies will just sign a contract with you and say, we're going to put all of our oil or all of our gas into your on your highway to get it to where it needs to go to. That is exactly right. You can think of us as a tollway. Okay. So when you started, did you already, did you raise some capital and have a deal kind of ready to go? Or what did that first day in the office look like? You know, it was very different then, uh, Chris, than it would be today. In fact, uh, there weren't really capital providers available. And so we kind of had to pay our own way. Okay. And so uh, early days in 1992 is when I started the company in uh, Ventana Natural Gas. In early days, we had to create cash flow. And so we did everything we could to create cash flow that would fund our overhead, develop the capital that we needed to invest. And so we did consulting. We did marketing and trading business where we actually, uh, you know, we'd buy and sell product on other people's facilities just to make enough cash flow to uh, to get the business going. 
uh, over time, capital providers, uh, you know, have become, uh, you know, very available in the midstream business. And so we were able to access capital. Just to kind of go through some of the generations of our capital providers, Kelsey Warren was, uh, was one of our investors early in 1996. In, in 2000, we actually kind of evolved to the next stage of capital, which was a company out of uh, New York called Yorktown Energy. Okay. Uh, that was the first, you know, significant capital and in, in, in really, uh, you know, a large capital source that we had. And then in 2002, we took the company public. And going public for us was just another way to access capital to keep doing what we were doing. So without going, I won't make you talk about all 25 years, but can you maybe paint a picture of where the company you run today is called InLink? How big is that company now? Yeah, so InLink today is one of the top 15 largest midstream companies. Uh, We move about 6 billion cubic feet a day, which would be some... Seven or eight percent of all the natural gas that moves, you know, throughout the United States, and then we're also in the crude oil business, and so we're a significant player in crude oil as well. We have about eleven hundred employees. I regret to say that that's uh, far fewer than what we had just some six months ago, with the downturn that we've seen in the pandemic and the downturn in the industry. Uh, we have contracted uh, as we've gone into more cost savings mode. But yeah, it's grown to be a a really significant company. The cool thing about that, I think, is that when you look back, we have been built. We have built the company, uh, one employee, one customer, one relationship, one deal at a time. And it really has been an evolution that goes all the way back to 1992. Uh, And so for me, it's been a journey that now has has been a 30-year journey. And is it all domestic or is it international too? We are all domestic. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, we're today concentrated in in really four core areas. Uh, North Texas in the Barnett Shell is a big area for us. The Mid Continent in Central Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana. We're one of the second. We are the second largest infrastructure uh, in Louisiana, or second largest midstream company in Louisiana, and then thirdly in the Permian, Delaware, and Midland basins in the Permian. And, and we're going to spend a lot on this podcast on leadership, but one kind of interesting question that I've never been able to ask on the podcast, can you kind of paint a picture of what life is like as a private CEO versus a public CEO and maybe things you weren't ready for or things that you learned along the way? Well, yeah. Let me let me first of all say that everything you do as a private CEO, you keep doing. Yeah. Uh, you just add a few things when you become a public CEO, and so you need a great team. Uh, I've been very fortunate uh, to have great partners from the very beginning of anything I've ever done. Uh, in the earliest days, uh, Chris Alds and Jim Wales were my great partners at Crosstex Energy, and then uh, have continued through the days, the current days at Inlink. So, you know, I I think of the CEO job in any company is to, number one, define the strategy of the company. You know, that has been important from day one. I'm a very, I'm a big planner. Um, I love to talk about vision, where we are today, where we're going to go in the future. So define the strategy is really uh, the first thing that a CEO has to do. The second thing you have to do Uh, is that you have to lead a winning culture, a culture that will be something that people want to be part of because you can't go do, you know, accomplish any vision really without others around you. Right. And so uh, so I would say to to lead a winning culture. Thirdly, uh, would be to develop the team and to have guys around you uh, that that are going to do, you know, work with you and do what needs to be done to accomplish that vision. 
next, I would say, I think a CEO's job always includes leading the strategic growth of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to hire someone that can do it in the same way that the, the, the CEO who's seeing everything and has the relationships externally, et cetera. So lead the strategic growth. And then lastly, I would say always asking what the score is. You right. know, how are we doing? Are we on track? And so those things continue, whether you're a private company or a public company. The things you get in the public company then is thousands of shareholders that you must communicate with and relate to. And just all the dynamics that goes with, uh, you know, being being part of a new trading company. Was there a difference along the way between maybe having a team of 50 people versus 1100 or all those things kind of remain true no matter how many people you have on board? Again, I don't see it as being different other than you have to find ways to be able to connect with larger numbers of people. Yep. So uh, the earliest days of Crosstex, for example, we uh, we regularly regularly gathered around the table yep. and just communicate. And so when we could do that with a dozen people, uh, it was really easy. Yep. It's much harder to do that with 1,100 people. Yep. And so uh, – but you have to find ways to do it because I – I do believe that um, my direct connection to uh, the last guy that we hired, you know, at an entry level position is as important uh, today as it ever was. And so we have to find ways to connect. I love it. And and look, I would tell you, because we're in the middle of the pandemic uh, and the work from home, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of those things. Uh, but that's made it more complicated. Yep. Um, in the same way, way, though, it's helped us to find some new ways to communicate. We're now doing virtual all-employee calls where we're doing uh, you know, some things that allow us to connect with people consistently. That's really cool. Yeah, I can't imagine being somebody coming out of college and your first day on the jobs in your bedroom and you're trying to long-term build mentorship. It's It's a very tough thing to do over the long period of time. Before we get into kind of more further into the personal side of things and leadership, I just wanted to give maybe a few minutes to just talk about where the state of oil and gas is today, um, how you kind of see the world. So maybe the first question just out of the gate is like, you've seen a lot of cycles, you've seen the ups and downs, oil and gas is infamous for really high highs and low lows, but like, where do we stand today? And is it different from cycles in the past? Well, certainly we're in a cyclical industry, um, Chris. I, I don't know if there's any industry that's been more cyclical over the last 30 years than than ours. We've seen it before, uh, but I do believe there's a lot going on today that we've not seen before. And I'll just kind of mention them and maybe we'll go further with some of them. But one of the things is kind of the headline that we're seeing on energy transition, the transition from a hydrocarbon-based energy world to something that has more uh, renewable energy, more environmentally friendly. So just under the heading of an energy transition. The second thing is we've really seen a flight of investors away from the energy business. Uh, And I think they're probably the best way to capture that is um, uh, over the last 20 years, the average energy weighting for the S&P 500 uh, investments has been about 15, I'm sorry, the average has been just under 10%. We've hit peaks of 15% weighting for for energy investing. Today, it's around 3 to 4%. And so uh, we've really lost uh, the energy investors uh, in the marketplace today. And so 
When will that come back? I don't know. I'd like to think that it's going to come back and we'll see a catalyst for that, uh, but it's hard to see what that would be today. Let me just talk a little bit about the cycles. Okay. So, uh, you know, you could go back uh, to the beginning of time and, and talk about some very dramatic cycles in the energy business, but just the ones I've seen. I came into the industry in 1984. One of the uh, earliest, one of the biggest was in 1985 and 1986. So I'd been in the business about a year mm-hmm. and I got a phone call. I was in the field buying oil and gas leases and I got a phone call and I got my first taste of what a down cycle was in the energy industry. Fortunately, I didn't lose my job, but we uh, we were called in from the field because a lot of people did lose their job. That one was basically an OPEC-driven decision that caused the down cycle in 1985-86. In 1997, 98, uh, we had the Asian Pacific recession uh, that led to a dramatic downturn in the industry. In 2000, 2002, we saw a U.S. recession. 2008 and 9, we saw a global financial crisis. That's one that probably everybody that listens to this would recall. And then in 2014, we saw another OPEC-driven decision in November of 2014 that caused a dramatic downturn. What I want to point out is in each of these five cycles, what we have seen is a very quick and dramatic downturn in prices. In every case, more than 50% reduction in the price of crude oil. Interestingly, in all of those, we've also seen a fairly rapid recovery. And so um, the loss of the crude oil price has happened in six to 12 months and the recovery has followed in six to 12 months. So we lose 50% of the price and we regain 50% back in about six to 12 months. This one feels different. Okay, uh, We've seen the dramatic downturn, but it's hard to predict that we're going to see the recovery. And so when I said we had some things we're dealing with in this cycle we haven't seen before, I think the pandemic is the biggest. Yep. And so the impact that it's had on demand and will continue to have on demand uh, certainly is a, an impediment to us seeing a recovery this time. And it's hard to see you know, a year from now where that, where demand could be in, as we sit in the pandemic right it, now. It really is. I mean, you know, I think um, we're seeing a lot of things recover, but one of the things we're not seeing recover is travel. And so um, the impact that that has on global demand for jet fuel, for example, is yep. significant. Yeah, it still remains. I think we're still too early to tell as far as when we're going to see demand come back. And it always comes down to supply and demand. I mean, we say we're in a cyclical in, cyclical industry. Yep. We're in an industry like all that is driven by supply and demand. So commodity driven, uh, maybe just a, a question. I didn't have it on our list, but if an analyst in New York City is asking Barry, what are you going to do to make it better? It's like, well, you can't come up with a magic solution to make prices go up. Um, obviously, the whole industry is in a cost-cutting perspective, but what are things that the businesses that are going to do well throughout this are like categorically doing? Is it just managing overhead and just holding on tight, or is there other things that give you hope? Yeah, Chris, I think you could just look at us as a being a, a, a case study. What we have done is we focused on the things that we control. Yep. And uh, in our case, in 2020, we will operate the same assets or in, you know, some some people describe it same store assets. Right. We will do that 20 percent less expensively than we did in 2019. Got it. We are leading the industry in terms of our ability to cut costs. I don't think anybody else has done it more dramatically than we have. Um, and so I think that's what you have to do. You have to find ways to be more efficient. And cost out is going to be the name of the game in the near term uh, as we manage through this this down cycle and lower level of activity that we're seeing across the business. 
And one more question kind of on the industry, and it's something as an outsider that I hear a lot about in headlines, ESG. Does that impact the midstream side as well? And how do you view ESG? What does it mean to you? Well, of course, uh, ESG impacts everything now. Okay. And, um, and it's really come on us quickly. What I would tell you is the first that we started hearing about ESG really was coming out of Europe, uh, you know, five, six years ago. And you would hear that in, in rooms uh, where people were talking about investing, they started talking about the, the concept of ESG. Let me make sure that listeners understand when we say ESG what we mean. And basically, it is environmental, social, and governance. And so uh, from an environmental standpoint, uh, investors are looking at how well we are stewarding what nature has given us. How well are we taking care of the environment? Uh, in the in in social, what what this is trying to do is look at how we relate to our employees, our customers, and the communities in which we operate, you yep. know, how are we treating people? And then thirdly, in governance, it's basically how we relate to our leadership, the compensation structure, shareholder rights. And so it really is becoming kind of a, a standard metric for how companies do on a relative basis compared to other companies. And so, you know, we believe uh, that we've always been driven by our core values of doing the right thing yep. uh, for our people, for our shareholders, et cetera. Uh, what we have to do better is tell the story better. Yep. Um, and so we're all doing that right now. I think people that have to change some of the ways they're doing that things are going to change that. But those who feel like they're already doing it well, we just got to do a better job of measuring it and then telling the stories. I'll give you an example. We did uh, a first ever this week, we're right in the middle of doing a diversity study in our, our uh, company just to make sure that we can tell the story of the diversity of our employees. Right. And it may feel a little awkward to people to actually share their personal information that we have to understand, but, but, but I think they understand why we're asking. It's not that we want to exploit it. It's simply we want to tell our story right. that we have a lot of diversity. We have a lot of young people in leadership. We have a lot of women in leadership. And those are metrics that people need to understand. That's awesome. And it's not going away. Uh, the ESG kind of discussion, it's here to stay. It, it is definitely here to stay and growing. Yep. All right. So we're going to pivot just a little bit more from the business side of things. Uh, Barry and I met a couple years ago. Um, and for those that have listened to the Pete Chambers episode, we met on a lot of the same kind of grounds of I wanted to meet people that thought a lot about the second half of their life. Uh, Being an entrepreneur, I spend a lot of time focused on my business and can often lose sight of uh, things that are important. I think I went through a drill once that hit me like a ton of bricks, but it it said, write down the five most important things in your life. And you put faith and family and, you know, business. And then it, you know, number one's always faith. But then they said, okay, well then allocate your percentage of time to each. And you basically like turn the list on its head. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I met Barry and Barry has done a tremendous amount of work using his platform that he built through his business career, but using it for a lot more family faith and teaching younger people. So we're going to dot, we're going to head down that world. The first question I would ask is just how did um, thinking about a balanced life and, and doing things differently than maybe a lot of peers in the industry, not in just the industry in the business world, how did that kind of come upon you and why did it captivate you? 
Yeah, well, Chris, I think what you're going to feel is uh, an increasing passion. Uh, you know, I talk about the midstream energy, and I got a great passion. I talk about leadership, and I got a greater passion. And I talk about you know faith, and it'll continue to grow. So I, I think you're, you and the listeners will hear that from me. First of all, you got a great gift at at a young age. You were able to have that picture of the roles that you have in life. And and a picture of, you know, at that time, it probably didn't agree with what you would want it to be in terms of where you were investing your time uh, relative to the, you know, the importance of those areas of your life. So celebrate that. Uh, and I know you've responded well to that. But for me, look, I think leadership is everything. I think it is um so much more than just, you know, the title or the job that you have, but it's leading people in a way that I, I like to think of it as leadership is giving light to the people that you lead. And so uh, I've had the opportunity to go into some pretty dark places in the world. For example, in Central Africa, uh, I've done some, been involved in some ministry work that we've done there. And when you go in, what you see is the result of the lack of leadership. And what it looks like is it looks like a dark world. It looks like people who are anxious, people who are malnourished, uh, people who can't make a living for themselves. And uh, it always comes back to the lack of leadership, leadership uh, that is, is selfish and doing things for their own gain. And so what I like to think about is that as a leader, um, when we're doing that well, you can walk in and you can just feel the light and the energy in the room. And it ties to so many things, like so many things in my world, it ties to really a a, a scripture that uh, speaks to me a lot. It's a Matthew 5, uh, 14 and 15, where it says, you are the light of the world. And I think, what that is saying to us is that that as leaders and uh, and as a man uh, or a woman, uh, it is our job to be a light. So that's the way I think about leadership. And we're getting away from business a little bit, but I do want to ask one question that I think is lacking in today's world. Being a leader that incorporates faith into their leadership, especially in a business environment, is being shunned more and more. It's polarizing you found a way to do it and do it really well. How do you do it? <laughs> well, look, I think, um, and in fact, you you, you kind of got into this question by saying that, you know, talk, talk about business versus leadership versus our faith. To me, they're all, it's all so connected. Yeah. And I really can't have a conversation without it all, you know, coming up in the same conversation. Probably the number one question I've been asked over the years has been, how do you live your faith in the marketplace? And my response is really simple. How can you not? Because your faith is who you are. It just simply defines who you are. And so if it's who you are and you're being authentic, which is one of the key characteristics of a leader is to be authentic. So how can you not be who you are in the marketplace? And so I I don't think there's any specific effort that has to be made uh, other than to be authentic. You know, in my particular case, I mean, I've led a large organization, a public organization. And so there are certain things that, you know, you you wouldn't want to do from from a faith standpoint. But the one thing that I know I can do is lead with biblically based leadership principles. Right. Because no one will disagree with that. They may disagree with who Christ is, for example. Right. uh, But they won't disagree with you on what the leadership principles that are that are taught in the Bible and so that that's what I try to do is just be who I am, 
used the great timeless principles from the Bible, and I think that's worked extremely well. Has faith been a big part of your life and your relationship with God since you were young, or did this happen somewhere throughout your life where there was like a moment? Well, I'll go back to the very beginning of this and, you know, having grown up in a small town, I grew up two blocks from the uh, First Baptist Church in Frisco. And as a child, I was in the church uh, every time the doors were opened. And so it's always been a part of my life. Got it. Uh, today, I would say it informs what I do more than at any other time in my life. And and so it's been, uh, there've been times that I feel like I've done a great job with that. And there's times that I haven't. And, uh, but thankfully, uh, I've been uh, doing life with a great group of people who model for me what that looks like, hold me accountable, encourage me. And uh, and so it's certainly a big part of who I am today. You've obviously, you know, you're getting to the second half of your life as we kind of define it by the Halftime Institute. But you're also in a position, and you've talked a lot about it today, about being able to watch people, uh, not just at your company, but in your kind of network grow up and become leaders and become better men. I guess my question, are there certain things that call it somebody in their 30s that's just kind of living day by day and not really thinking about the second half of their year do well that set them up for a better second half of their life? Yeah, there's 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 so much, uh, so many different ways I could go with that. Let me let me go this way. And I, I would just say I was very fortunate to understand early in m- my life the different roles that I'd been given. What became clear to me that number one uh, in terms of the roles that I had was uh, my faith was number one. And you, you, you named that number one earlier when you uh, enumerated your, your key things in your life. Uh, and so number one is faith. It defines who I am. And then the other things that follow that basically are the roles that I have as a result of what God has given me, you know, in my identity in him. And that is my family, uh, my work and then friends and and other things in life. And and, and so, Chris, I, I have um, if you walked in my office right now, what you'd see on the wall is a collage of pictures that represent those four areas. Uh, there are pictures that represent my faith. There's my family. There's work pictures, and then there is there's just you know kind of the other parts of my life: recreation, TCU, yeah. golf, etc. And so every morning when I walk in, and every day when I walk out, uh, I have the reminder that that's what's important. Yep. And so uh, I allow everything in my life to run through that filter. For example, when you ask me to do this today, yep. I run it through the filter of where does that fit. Yep. And if it had nothing to do with any of those four things, or it didn't check at least two or three of those boxes, I probably wouldn't do it. Yep. And so it does, uh, in so many ways, overlay how I allocate my time and the things that I think about. Let's dive in a little bit to something that I know is playing a huge role in your life right now. It's something called The Better Man, which is a ministry that you have, I believe you've created it, you founded it. Yeah, so there. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the history of that. Okay. Um, so let me first of all say, Better Man is an organization that was created to foster um, a growing community of men who desire to to have a better life, a more fulfilling life from their work, uh, from their families and their friends, their marriages, their relationship with God. It's basically men who desire to really understand what God intended us to to experience. Uh, I, I believe in so many ways God intended for us to have this incredible experience as men and as women and as others 
and and we've just been lost. I mean, we've been living in confusion. And so what we're trying to do is is bring men together to create a movement that would allow men to understand better what God's definition of manhood is. Yep. So yeah, how did we get here? Let me let me describe that. So in the, in the early 90s, uh, a guy named by the name of Robert Lewis was teaching men in Arkansas on this topic uh, in his local church. Robert was the was the lead pastor of a significant church in in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, what they found was that it had an incredible impact on their own church, and so the men started asking Robert to take it outside the church. And so in the early 2000s, he actually introduced it to the broader world in a curriculum called Men's Fraternity. Okay. Uh, over the next decade, millions of men, I believe three million men, went through the program between 2000 and 2010. And so it was incredibly successful. I had the opportunity to get to know Robert starting in 2001. I walked into the boardroom of Leadership Network in halftime, and uh, Robert was in the room. He was this giant person. Uh, who was the warmest, brightest light that I really think I had experienced up to that point. And so I quickly uh, just gravitated towards Robert and things he was teaching about manhood. And so uh, I was incredibly impacted. I started sharing that with other men. One of the men that I shared that with, by the way, was the young guy that you uh, that you know, Austin Adams. Yep. Um, Austin Adams at that time was uh, in 2007, I believe, was a baseball player at TCU. And I introduced him to Men's Fraternity. It had a great impact on him. Fast forward a few years later, uh, Men's Fraternity became a little less relevant in terms of the way it was communicated, the medium of, of how it was communicated. And some of the stories were dated, et cetera. And so we started dreaming about what it would look like to do Men's Fraternity or something like that on biblical manhood uh, in you know today's world. So when we finally decided to go do that, we said the first thing we need to do is go see Robert and see what he's doing. Well, what we learned was Robert was already starting to work on kind of a, the next thing around biblical manhood. And so in a very short period of time, we put our arms around each other and said, let's go do this thing together. Yep. Uh, the last two years we've spent uh, preparing in June of this year, just four months ago, we have uh, launched the Better Man. And in four months, we now have over 300 groups that are going through this program together. Wow. Uh, that means over 10,000 men are currently going through it. And uh, we believe that, uh, you know, God is going to do something really special with this. So maybe my first question out of that is, what is biblical manhood versus the way the world sees manhood? manhood? Like, how do you see it differently? Yeah, so so the confusion has been the way the culture has defined manhood. It has been described as toxic masculinity because it's what we learn in the locker room or what we learn in, in movies or what, you know, what the world teaches us. What we're trying to do is help men understand the definition of manhood yep. as given by God in Genesis. Immediately on creating man, he said there are four responsibilities for man. And so we're trying to help men, you know, um, understand what those responsibilities are. And it starts with to know him and courageously follow his word. Secondly, the responsibility of man is to love and cherish God's woman that he created subsequently. Thirdly, is to excel at his work. And then fourthly, is to better the world that you live in. And so if you go back to Genesis, what you'll see is that that is the responsibility that God gave men 
and and it was the beginning of men basically taking care of the world that God had created. Right. And so that was his training ground. That's the way that he wanted us to lead. And what you see today uh, is anything but that. Yep. It is a confused man. And so if if somebody's signing up for this curriculum, how long is it? What are they going to go through? Like, what's their experience going to be like? Yeah, so it begins with a curriculum. Okay. And, and we think of the curriculum as being a way to invite men into the journey of being better men, yep. but it is only an 11-week curriculum. Okay. So it's basically 11 sessions. Uh, the best way to do it is around the table with, you know, seven to 10 other guys. Uh, in some cases, it'll be done in a large format where maybe there's three or 400 guys in a room and then you break into small tables. There's always uh, the, 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 the model is important. And the model is that there is a discipler or an older, more mature uh, man in the group. And then, uh, and then you know, whatever you have as far as the younger guys in the group who are trying to understand what it means to be a better man. So it's a discipler, disciplee uh, model. And uh, so it lasts 11 weeks. And then beyond the 11 weeks, we see it as a lifelong journey. Yep. And our goal is to resource men with all the things they need for that lifetime journey to do it successfully. And so there are many different expressions of how we'll do that beyond the curriculum. I would say it will be events, it will be resources, books that we vetted, teachings on different topics of what in, that that uh, men uh, and responsibilities that men have. So if you want to learn how to how to be a, a father to a daughter, uh, you know, we want to vet the curriculum and make it available so that you can gather with your guys in, into any topic you want and uh, go deeper. That's incredible. Yeah. You mentioned meeting Robert Lewis in a boardroom at uh, Halftime Institute. When did you get involved with Halftime Institute and how has it changed your life? Yeah, another one of those things in life that you go, you know, gosh, what a what a what a gift it was. But uh, in 1997, so we create Crosstex Energy in December of 1996. In January of 97, we moved into our offices that we were in for the next 20 years. And on the marquee in the office building that we moved into was Halftime Institute and Bob Buford. I had just read or would in the next few weeks, I would read the book Halftime. And at the time I was I was very young, but I already started thinking about the the next season of life and the concept of halftime. And so it's just those things all came together. Yeah. Uh, the book, for those that haven't read it, is basically that, you know, in, in this world, sometimes really in confusion, we spend all our time trying to build a career. And then once we kind of do that and figure out that that's not as life-giving as we would think, then we go into the second half of life, which is a, a, a focus on significance. And so the, the, the success to significance is what the halftime book really explains. In a perfect world, we would be doing both of those all the time, and yeah. so we wouldn't really have a halftime event. But we would spend the first, you know, part of our career being, you know, equally balanced between our career and our our uh, our ministry. So, of course, what did I do? I uh, read the book, um, went to Rob uh, to uh, Bob Buford's office, knocked on the door. His uh, assistant, BJ. Um, uh, allowed me to go in to see Bob, and and uh, we had a, a long conversation. In fact, the CEO of the organization at that time was a guy that lives here in Fort Worth, Tom Wilson. And I think I got about 15 minutes into the conversation, and Bob said, wait a minute, let me go get Tom and bring him in. 
And then the three of us sat there and talked for a long time. And uh, shortly thereafter, I mean, they were best friends and we've been doing life together. And, and we, we lost Bob a couple of years ago, but uh, certainly a great impact on me. Everything I've heard about Bob and halftime has just been incredible. Uh, I've had it ability to spend some time with Lloyd Reeb, who yeah. now does it and been on a couple of retreats and it's been it's been really cool. Awesome. Well just kind of to wrap up second half and then we'll we'll kind of move into some fun personal questions before we wrap it up. How do you plan on spending the second half of your life? I mean we talked about the better man, um, but obviously you have a wife, you have kids, like what 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 does the rest of your life look like or what do you hope to achieve in this second half? You've got an amazing platform to to do some cool things with. Yeah, well well some of the listeners may know that in January of 2018 I stepped away from the CEO job at Inlink and and it really was because I wanted to go do more things around the second half of life, if you will, but just things that I'd always wanted to do and hadn't been able to do. Uh, and so I did that for about a year, year and a half before I came back into the CEO job. You know, the rest of my life, I want to do those kind of things, which is is really be a uh, always uh, on mission. Yep. Um, I want to be a discipler of men. It's something I love to do. And what I'm getting to do is part of Better Man today. And then, you know, just just the, the greatest investment that I can make is in my family. I have an incredible family, uh, a, a, a wife who is uh, my greatest friend and, and greatest inspiration in the world. Two daughters who are 26 and 27, a grandson who's 10 months old. And so those, uh, those uh, certainly get a lot of time. That's incredible. Yeah. All right. We'll ask a few uh, personal questions. Do you have a morning routine? How do you get your day started? I do. Um, it's really important. I love to get the day started. Uh, I think of, um, you know, Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the first thing I do in the morning is to renew my mind on what's important. And that to me is uh, a quiet time uh, where I spend reading and, and uh, you know, meditating, journaling and doing the things that kind of restore and re renew my mind. Uh, I then work out. I just started my last year before I turned 60, and so it's important that I continue to be healthy. Uh, and so I, I spend the first you know hour or so quiet time, the next hour in working out, and then I go to work and, and uh, carry on with the rest of the day. But that's worked really well for me for pretty much my whole adult life. What time do you wake up? Uh, normally between 5 and 5.30. Okay. Fair enough. We, I think we had somebody the other day that wakes up at 3.30 every morning. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you can no. possibly do that. <laughs> What's the best advice you've had? Well, actually, I'm going to rephrase the question. I was doing research on this episode, and I was I usually ask people what the best advice is, but you gave it in a in an article you did with D Magazine, I think, ten years ago in 2007, and you said, uh, and I I thought it was incredible. Do the right thing, and you'll always be able to go back to where you've been. Mm. What does that mean? Yeah, and and it actually is something that was communicated to me by someone that I was actually separating from in, in a partnership. Okay. Um, and so uh, one of the things we didn't talk about, but but when we moved from being Comstock Natural Gas into Crosstex Energy, okay. uh, I left, I was, at, at that time we were a wholly owned subsidiary of a company called Comstock Resources, okay. a guy named Jay Allison. Great friend, great mentor, a great influence on me and, and my life. Um, and, and Jay, as we signed the papers and we were walking out the door, those are the words that he said to me. Yeah. 
always do the right things and you'll be able to go back to anywhere you've ever been. And he was saying that in a broader context, but it was also relevant to our relationship, you know, yep. that I had handled that situation well yep. and that we would able to be able to continue in a relationship. So, yeah, that's where that came from. I love it. Yeah. Is there a, a book that you've read, maybe personal or business, that had a huge impact on you? There's a book I read every day. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's hard to go beyond that. I mean, you know, when you look at just the wisdom and the teaching and the timeless uh, application of the life manual uh, that the Bible is, and so so certainly that. But I'll give you more than that. Uh, it's hard for me to say that there is one book. And here's the way I would I would say: for every season of my life, there has been a book or a series of books that have been influential. And uh, so if you go back in the early days, I would say the, the, the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was huge for me because it helped me understand, you know, how to uh, really enter the business world and how to make the, the main thing the main thing. Um, and then I've moved uh, recently. So Tim Keller, pastor out of New York, uh, author, um, great thinker, great communicator. I looked up last year and I was reading three books and doing three different studies with different groups that were all written by Tim Keller. Yep. And so relevant to our topic today, I think, is a book he wrote called Every Good Endeavor. And it helps people understand what God, the way God designed us to work. Yep. And so some of the key elements of that is that was the first thing he did. He created man and he gave him work. At that time, it was to tend to the garden and to cultivate it, which really, you know, was where we get the word culture from, but create a culture uh, that is a flourishing, uh, a flourishing place. And it was really as, as God was preparing him for greater things in the future, he started him on the fundamentals or the basics of taking care of the garden. And so, yeah, that'd be the one book I would call out. I love it. Yeah. All right. Last question. If you had a billboard on a major highway that you owned and you could put anything on it for the world to know, what would you put on the billboard? Yeah, so I think the billboard a bill, billboard needs to be relevant to the moment that we're in. Yeah. And in this moment, what I think of is Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, where God says, be, hum be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to maintain unity. That's what we need in this world right now. Yep. More people to be completely humble and gentle. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. It's been great to be with you. This was awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.